Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Joy was recorded on October 20th, 2022. Thank you, everyone. I'm so really grateful to be here and to share my story with you all tonight. Um, I was born in Florida and I, um, traditional family, my my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad actually was in medical school when I was born. Um, I don't remember much memory of, of, of interacting with them. As I think back to my very early childhood, I was either in front of the television or I was uh, outside playing um, a lot of time alone, probably way too much. Um, and. Um, I look back at pictures. I have a picture that I wanted to show you all. And whoops. No, it's the wrong way. Here it is. And my um, dad, there's me pointing out at everybody. I'm pretty inquisitive and I see pictures of me. I look pretty happy when I'm little. My dad um, most likely has uh, some kind of personality disorder. He um, didn't know how to bond or connect with any of us really from the get-go. And yes, he did work a lot. He was a workaholic. But when he was home, there just was absolutely no connection. It was just move out of the way, push out of the way. Um, And I honestly felt like I didn't know him very well until when you got a little bit older, each one of us, I had three siblings. um, He would wait until then he could have an audience. Um, very, as I've looked at characteristics of narcissism, both of them have um, characteristics of narcissism, um, psychopathy, um, as I look back on it now. Some of the early pictures, and actually I do remember this, I was terrified to go to uh, swim lessons, and my mom would bribe me with a doll. My mom had a massive shopping addiction, hoarding addiction. She was obsessed and is obsessed with dolls. Um, There's a picture and I looked and looked for it. I'm sitting on the couch and there's so many dolls. You can really, you can't see me. And in many ways that is so, um, it's so poignant in the fact that I was one of the dolls. I was a doll to pull out, to curl my hair like Shirley Temple, and then to put back on the shelf. Um, it creates a real unreality. I I wasn't a doll that could cry. I was reprimanded for crying and for showing too much emotions. I needed to have a smile on my face to pull me out when company came over. And I was a good girl. And I tried really hard to be that. I don't have, when I think of, of my early years, I can only get flitting images of uh, probably violence. My dad, um, you know, kicking me when I'm a little girl. I probably was naughty and had a temper tantrum, but it was way over the top. 
I have a real hard time remembering these kinds of things. But my sister has told me a story of when she was three or four and the strap would come out and he's trying to hit her under the bed. And she was sobbing as she told me the story. I, I believe that. So for me, I do remember, though, nobody being around. And by kindergarten, my mom had taken off to uh, stay with her grandfather, her father, who was dying of cancer. And I was sent to live with my grandmother and my grandfather. He was the delight of my life. Somebody that I was precious to him. I mattered to him. He interacted with me. I, I have pictures of him playing on the beach with me, getting down there. He loved little kids. And, um, and he showed me love um, to be special to somebody. Well, by the time I was finishing kindergarten, my dad got a transfer to Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma. And when we moved, I had no idea how far we were moving from my grandparents. They came up every weekend. So there was some kind of stability, even though my grandmother had mental illness as well. There was still some kind of stability there. By the time we moved to Oklahoma, my world got darker and darker. I was running with just the neighborhood kids. And then two years after that, we moved uh, to outside of Oklahoma City, way out in the country and extremely isolated. Um, I do have images and I, and I, uh, I learned to dissociate really, really well. Well, my dad would um, beat my brother, the one that's two years younger than me, for not being a very good speller. And I, I still can hear the gagging screams, honestly, if I think about it too much. Um, and I would learn to float above my body, like I was on the ceiling in some way. It was so terrifying to me. Um, as the years went on, that brother learned to take it out on the brother that was five years younger. And so he began beating. There was no uh, very small little kid, seven years younger than me, and a very, uh, you know, much bigger. There was no match. And I can remember begging my parents to step in and stop it. And they would laugh and mock me and say, take it outside. And it was so bad that the younger brother shut down. He didn't talk to any of us. He didn't eat. And I do remember an image of my mom. He had bruises all over his legs. And my mom took his little knees and slammed them together said, you got to put some meat on those old chicken legs of yours. And she was laughing and she was absolutely insane in her cruelty um, and not protecting us. So I, again, I learned to play outside. I learned to dissociate a lot. Um, there was nobody there in that home. I mean, it was really like we were, as my sister says, we were feral cats just running wild. Um, with no skills. And I'm talking even hygiene skills. I didn't understand that until I was way older. And other people would say, wow, your parents don't bathe. And I noticed the last time or two that I went, 
She had dolls all in the bathtub and boxes all in the shower. Um, it, it's extreme, severe, severe mental illness. Um, but again, I would go and visit my grandmother and my great grandmother, and I would wander through trails. There was so much stuff you couldn't see the walls. Um, so this was generations back. And I did hear stories of great grandfather being the town drunk. And I heard a story, which I'm sure is true, where he came home and took my grandmother's little dolly and threw it in the fire. So uh, my grandmother preached on the wickedness of drinking and was fixated on it. But she would sit in the middle of the living room and she was just completely out of her mind. Mm. So <laughs> unpleasant childhood to say the least. I, I didn't know how to relate to kids. I didn't, wasn't being taught any of those skills. I wasn't being held or, you know, the bedtime stories. I was, I remember thinking I would love to have a family like the Waltons or Little House on the Prairie. I would watch those shows and I would read the Nancy Drew books and I would feel that affection that those families had and, and wish it were mine. Um, we were so isolated. I didn't know many other families to see like what normal might even look like, but the television families were definitely mine. <laughs> and um, uh Got to take a breather for a second and just kind of come back within. So I got more and more depressed and I shut down more and more and um, went to college and I couldn't believe how free I felt. I started that feeling of I didn't know um, what it was like not to be in an insane world. Went through college, partied a lot, um, got out, became, again, the good little girl, the school teacher. My dad, super coercive, controlling, told me what to major in, what I could do, what I couldn't do, and I obeyed. And I became the teacher, and I, and I actually really liked it. I had no sense of identity, no, no idea of how to make a choice on my own, how to set a boundary. And a couple of years into teaching, an older man came into my life, eight years older. And when I think back on it, he would eventually be my um, husband. Uh, I, I saw red flags waving and I, I did nothing. This was what I was used to. And um, so I... I went right along with it. He wanted to get married really quick. I went along with that. I waited a little bit longer, but, but um, honestly, I had people telling me that he'd had problems in the past with women. I didn't listen to anything. I, I needed that compulsion to repeat that pattern was so strong in me that I wouldn't have listened to anyone. And so I, I married and by the time I had my first child, she was about a year old. And I do remember he would threaten suicide. And that was the first time, but it was always a, uh, I'll, I'll take you with me. And I do have flitting images of him pointing a gun at me 
And at that point, I just was like, I will be the dutiful wife. I will stay in this. I will make this work. This is the, the thing that, you know, my family's done traditions, no divorce. And um, so I stayed and I was going to make it work. And his rages, like my dad's rages, got worse and worse and worse. And I had a son. And I remember that he was jealous of my attention towards my son, like holding him. That's how the crazy was. A lot of this is like paranoid delusions. So in my world, they're very paranoid. I mean, this is an example. My dad, my mom and dad haven't flown since 9-11 because they're afraid of terrorism on the airplane. My um, ex was afraid of like Y2K, a lot of things and extreme control. It was like being in an emotional prison. I didn't know how to use the internet. I didn't, I wasn't allowed to open the mail anymore. He took care of all of that in a, in quote, my traditional, very cult-like home. I wasn't allowed to leave without him clocking the minutes of how long I was gone and then reprimanding me. I remember going on a trip with some women. And as soon as I got there, he was calling me a whore and a slut. Um, for being there, just for having fun, just what other people do, you know, they get together with their women friends, ended up coming home early. And um, it was in a virtual prison, really. So the years rolled on, I got used to this, I found very, very uh, fundamentalist kind of churches, we would find where the women was supposed to be very submissive. And, um, and I played my part of the false image. We sat on the front row. We were there every time the church opened, just like my parents, not, not drinkers either. Drugs and drinking were not our problem. Um, but by the time my son got three or four years old, he did start beating on my son and I did not know what to do. I was like, Oh my God. And, um, had my third child, and I, I would go in and out of these depressions, very, very depressed, would send me to a therapist. And then as soon as I started feeling independent, he would shut it down. And you're, you've had enough of that because he needed me to take care of the kids. He wasn't really taking care of anybody. He just was the tyrant, really. And I remember I went to this therapist and I told him, I opened up and I started telling him what he was doing to the, the kids and me. You know, he would shove me against the wall, threaten me, always these threats of if you ever leave me, I'll commit suicide and probably take you with me. Um, and this therapist said, I'll help you get out. And I thought <laughs> by then I was about having a nervous breakdown, but he helped me and I had a lot of help. You don't just walk away from somebody like this. I had to have police involved. He threatened to kill my counselor. He went to his house. They got into a fight. And it's just on and on and on. Um, but I got multiple restraining orders. It went to trial because he wanted sole custody and I wanted protection for the children. And while that all was getting in place, I told him, please don't let the children be alone with him. He's not safe. He's violent. And they wouldn't believe me. It's my word against his word. But one time they came home from a visitation and I still have this little bear 
And it means a lot to me. I kind of have it as my inner child now. My youngest was very afraid to tell me. In fact, my older one, I think, talked about it and said that he had um, asked who she wanted to live with. It was all of this, you know, who do you want to live with, this kind of stuff with the kids. And um, my youngest, being a four-year-old, said, I want to go home to mommy, something to that effect. And he threw her into the wall. And when she came home, she had a bump on the head that she was afraid to show me because he said, I'll get you next time you come back. Uh, and the smartest, best thing I ever did was I took her to the emergency room and the doors came open for me and the kids. All of a sudden, the police were there. I, um, I got, I ended up getting, and it's a miracle. I got supervised visitation. A prison guard supervised my ex-husband with the children so that they could be safe. I can't tell you how hard that was to work for that. And, um, and I continue to work because he continued to want to undo it. He would um, continue to violate the restraining orders. And I live in a really small little town, so we were easy to stalk. And stalking became his thing as he terrorized us, really, from one place to the next. As soon as he came to Colorado, we were out in Florida during the divorce it wasn't even a week and he was arrested and in jail again um, for stalking me and my youngest on a little ski trail. And this was a continual pattern of, of uh, huge boundaries, police boundaries, <laughs> restraining orders. Um, and this was the kind of life that I lived. It was a living nightmare, really, um, until in 2014, I had a really peaceful spiritual experience. Um, I was feeling a lot of peace. I wasn't in the extreme fear that I had just been living in. And a couple of days later, the police did call me and they said he had taken his life. So um, shocker. Uh, and he was out of our life. I had by then repeated the pattern, not with someone violent, but someone that was a stoner and an alcoholic. Um, that was a first for me. I hadn't been around alcohol, so I didn't know that you could be stoned 24-7. And, um, and uh, I lived that party lifestyle. That part of it was fun, and then it became not fun. It was artificial, and it wasn't real, and it wasn't authentic. And I remember thinking... I don't want to do this anymore. And I remember talking to a friend and she said, why don't you go to Al-Anon and then you'll know if he's an alcoholic. And within a month, what they said in that room was hitting me in the face. And I knew I was with an addict. It was different than the compulsive mentally ill people, the toxic people, even though I have a sister that's an alcoholic, a raging alcoholic. Oh, I also have an aunt that died of alcoholism and no one even knew at the funeral, nobody would talk about it, how she died. It's all been extreme denial. So um, yeah, I opened the doors to recovery um, by stepping into the rooms of Al-Anon. And I even picked a sponsor 
that was like my parents. That's why I think they, they have the fellow traveler model in ACA because we tend to unconsciously pick someone that's very similar, someone that has no empathy, someone that has no capacity to care, to be kind. It was very rote, very cold, as I remember. And I was thinking, oh, well, this is the way it is. And I want this so badly, but I can remember crying and there was nothing. There was no kindness. And somebody in that group told me about ACA. I didn't have it in my town. So I called in and I started Zooming later, but I would just call in and I got that big red book. I'll never forget when I opened it and I kept reading it and I was like, this is my story. This is trauma recovery. What is trauma recovery? I knew I was a codependent, but this so focused on trauma. It was just me through and through. Um, as I'm reading the pages um, and I'm embracing the steps. Surrender, surrender to what? I can be restored to sanity. That was a really big, and clarity. And uh, the further I got into the program, lo and behold, I did. I started having clarity. Sadly about my family members, I would let them walk all over me. I would let them use me and abuse me. I would, um, my son got into drugs. I would beg him to stop using drugs. Um, he became a rageaholic. Again, this is all generational, but recovery teaches you to step away, to detach from people that are abusing you, that betray you, that reject you. And I've had my fair share. I have two older children with extreme severe mental illness. Um, it's a very difficult thing to live with. And, um, and, uh, And I can't be around it anymore. Um, my family started dropping by the wayside. I have a what you call the tea party relationship with my parents. I'm very cautious and careful to protect my inner children. Um, and after my divorce, I honestly really wanted a relationship with my siblings. And I would try. I would go to my sister and the alcoholism and the raging. Um, I, I would get so depressed, I'd go to bed. And then I would get together with my other brother. I don't even talk to the one. It's, it's way too violent and delusional. Um, and I would see the way he would verbally abuse his children. And just like, all of a sudden, it's like, where's the love? This program brought me into what is love and what is intimacy? What could that look like? people that actually care for you. And I, I had healthy mirroring, not just healthy mirroring, but healthy mirroring with love. Like I got to feel what that feels like, that unconditional love that I never had. <laughs> and <laughs> just a minute. And I could feel my feelings. I could grieve. And I did. I grieved for the first two years that I was in ACA because I had a significant trauma bond with my mom. 
and they would call her to be abused. Either that or to trash talk my kids because that's what she wanted to hear until I stopped. I kept learning more and more as I would go through recovery and think, do I, there's got to be a different way. There's got to be a different way than the way that I'm living my life in all of this chaos and dysfunction. Um, The depression and anxiety has been ongoing, but I will say that about a year ago, I stumbled on something called two-way prayer, and it was something that evidently was way back at the beginning of recovery. It's a journaling form, and for me, it was an opening. I was doing two of the steps right around the same time, and it also hit me that I was expecting these people that couldn't possibly connect with me to connect with me anyways, that it was like the tree frog on the wall. They couldn't, we were speaking two different languages. And I finally got it. It was like, it was an epiphany. And then I started journaling or these prayer and a spiritual part of me. I had a very intellectual God. It was a condemning judgmental type God. And as I started learning things that you all already know, but for me, were a big deal, like how to get on the internet. It's not, It's not rocket science, even though I thought it was. My ex had me convinced of that and that I couldn't do anything. The biggest thing that narcissists will say to you is you're incompetent. And something that my daughter said to me, which was very true, what are you going to do? I was so dependent. I was such a dependent personality that I literally had to learn everything. And things that I'd known before, I didn't have the confidence to think that I could do them. I still call fellow travelers when I'm struggling with a project. (laughs) And it might just be something like I need a word of encouragement on this, you know, that I can make a mistake in painting this heart. That's not going to be the end of the world. Those are things that fellow travelers, my, my family of choice, really, that, that you all have helped me with. And I'm so grateful. The two-way prayer has been a significant part of my life because I start the morning, I would wake up before and I would just go into a spiral of depression and stink on thinking. And, you know, my life is a fail. (laughs) I can still go there, but more and more I get started right away on the daily readers, the AC readers and Allen and reader, my my scriptural stuff, my, um, my spiritual stuff, um, my readings, my journalings, my prayer time has been huge for me. Um, every morning start of the day. Uh, and I get a lot of answers. I ask questions in my journal and I get a lot of answers from the God of my understanding who isn't a tyrant anymore, a distant cold God. It's a God that is very mystical, a God that loves me unconditionally, just as I am, a comforting, reassuring God. Uh, And that's coming out of, of during my divorce, being an agnostic, I really didn't know what I believed anymore. So for me, this has been a spiritual journey. Um, 
and um, one that uh, that has given me a peace and a contentment that I never had before. As a dependent personality, I was always just chasing the next uh, crazy person, really. The wilder, the more drama, the more codependent, the better. The more boundaryless, come home with me. And until my anxiety attacks just became worse and worse and worse. And again, I would I would talk to fellow travelers that were further down the road than me. And they could talk about, you know, here you are. I'm going into the inner drugstore. Yes, I can tell that I am, but I can step out of that. Again, I don't have to go there. Boundaries were huge. I was scared and I still am scared to set boundaries, to stand up for myself. That's been gigantic. And it's so empowering to learn that I can say no. And I don't have to give an explanation. I don't have to justify. I don't have to get angry. I don't have to defend and I don't have to explain. And I always had to do those things in my family or with my ex or with my significant others. I would defend, 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 explain and all of those things. And realizing that sometimes no is a complete sentence. Um, Bill of Rights, which is the topic I picked tonight, is been huge for me. I have several of them, and I didn't think I had any of those rights before. I would look at them and just be in absolute, for me, you mean I don't need to be shamed or humiliated or belittled anymore? You mean I don't have to sit while my sister is just raging in the middle of the room? You mean I don't have to listen to a conversation with my son screaming on the other end? It's been a long journey. And um, and I'm still on it. I can get pulled in, especially when it comes to um, family. Um, I think... <laughs> I think that uh, I don't know that I have anything. I think I needed a rude awakening to find the spiritual awakening. And, um, you know, it's a process. It's each day. It's one hour at a time. Sometimes it's one minute at a time for me. Progress, not perfection. I hang on to these slogans that I think help me. And I pray. I pray to the God of my understanding for continual uh, showing me of, of what love can look like because uh, I didn't feel that from from again from my family I, I tried really hard to connect and and it was it's been it's a disaster and finally I did as I said in program I've let it go and that's okay today I'm way more content with it I'm content too with my um, aloneness my solitude, and they talk about not isolating. I do get together with people, but I'm way more selective about who that might be, way more selective. And I think as someone that's been through trauma, a lot of times we have a broken picker. We don't know exactly who is safe and who is not safe. And they're all out there. <laughs> I really sound paranoid, but. <laughs> um, 
yeah, I take it, I take it one day at a time with that. And I pray for, you know, for safety, for discernment, for intuition as I, uh, as I'm guided and I, and I ask for guidance too. What is my next right thought? What is my, I have a lot of self-doubt. What is my next right decision? Um, slowing down is huge. I couldn't slow down. My mind would just race and obsessive thinking. I can still get there, but it's getting better. So I can't tell you what a blessing this program has been for me. It's really a spiritual journey that I didn't have. And I thought I was, I was the most religious person ever. <laughs> and and um, until I found love. Until I found love.